Yeah, five, uh, a ten and a five minute will be uh, will be ideal, please. Thank okay, you. thank you, thank you, Michael. Um, over to you. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jill. Um, thank you, everyone, for inviting me here. Um, my name's Mike. I'm a grateful alcoholic. And before I start, I'd like to begin with a set aside prayer, please. God, help us to set aside everything that we think we know about the steps, the program, our illness, the solution, about the service and what we're about to do here. Um, most of all, God may have a new experience in all these things, especially you. Amen. Um, I was born on the 6th of March, 1968. Um, and firstly, the hardest questions that I can ever be asked um, are the simple ones. We've just had a laugh about them because it's been like the Spanish Inquisition here. So I felt like it was an interview at Customs coming over to uh, America from Mexico. Um, and, uh, and, and that common question of where are you from? Um, it's, that is the hardest question for me ever to answer. The second one is, what do you do? Um, that, uh, that, has, that has become more and more difficult as I've got older. Um, the first question, the answer to that is, wherever my feet are now, that's, that's where I am. Um, I was born on the 6th of March, 1968, in a wash house in Sheffield, in South Yorkshire. Um, my 16-year-old mother, who had just come over from Aden, had been posted out there with her family. Her father was in the army. He was an ex-war vet. Um, and since the war, they'd done probably about 25 countries in 20 years um, or something. And uh, and she was pissed off. <clears throat> she was... Um, Angry at her father, she was angry at the attention her brothers got. Um, she she was um, resentful, and she suddenly got a lot of attention as a sixteen-year-old on an army base um, that her father was in charge of, and she got pregnant um, to a Scottish guy who I've never met, um, and she was sent away to to make me disappear, which is what. Um, single unmarried mothers um, had to do in those days and uh, and so six weeks later I was given up for adoption and you know the traumas that started probably were before um, you know my birth uh, I don't believe it's possible that uh, you know if kids um, in the womb can recognise the voice of the father and the mother and um, they can kick and react to external stimuli that uh, they don't know that they're full of cortisol. They don't know that they're going to be abandoned and they don't know that there's something wrong um, and they, they don't detect it. I don't believe that um, for a minute anymore. Um, and as a child, I was extremely sensitive to anything. And as many of us are, I... Um, 
was given into the care of a loving family and um, immediately the animosity started between my, my biological mother and my new family because she refused to sign the adoption papers until they'd met. Um, and, uh, of course, that was against the law, so she held it to ransom and I nearly ended up in an orphanage. So my new family went up um, at a bequest to, to meet her and um, it was quite an unpleasant meeting, I, I was told later. Um, but I was I was then taken back, and um, I, I grew up in this family that uh, I felt was my family. Um, and around about the age of four, um, I uh, I had this experience of. Um, watching things I shouldn't have been watching on the television. Um, my mother had agoraphobia and all sorts of problems um, and, and did a lot of cleaning. And I was left to my own devices to either disappear on my bike and go out into the woods and climb trees and fall out of them, or I was sat in front of the television. Um, and I remember watching some of these experiments that were done on these monkeys that were taken away from their mothers. Um, and I'm four and I'm watching the, the trauma bonding and the abandonment issues of these monkeys um, in these experiments where they would go for comfort before milk. And if they were electrocuted, they would cling on even more closely to their mothers. And, and I was traumatized by this. I was four, five. Um, and I remember asking my mum lots of questions. Um, and one of them was about breastfeeding. And the questions just went one too far. And then, and then she told me, I'm, I'm not a child. Um, and I think what that did for me was opened up the world to, um, I need to set aside everything I think I know because what I think is not necessarily true. My beliefs are not necessarily true. Um, who I think I am is not necessarily true. And at this point, um, it was um, sort of a massive awakening that the world was no longer a safe place. Um, and, and I know many people have had different things happen to them that immediately the world changes. Um, you know, someone without any professional guidance and experience qualifications can change somebody's life in 15 seconds. And 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 that was an event that happened to me, um, one of several. Um, and there was also um, a lot of uncertainty around money. Um, my father's business ran into trouble. His partner ran off with uh, a van and the money and he had to start again. And this guy's name was thrown around the house. And there was the financial insecurity. There was the emotional insecurity. There was the um, personal insecurity. So my, my column three in step four was starting to fill up at the age of four. Um, and um, and I didn't I, I didn't know um, that I was full of anxiety. Uh, we moved house, so this perfect place we lived in um, suddenly disappeared. The the family we had next door, my my two cousins, um, the friends I had, the park, the trees, they all went. 
and I ended up in a new place where we had no carpets, no money. There was rows going on at home. Uh, and every time I went out the front door, um, people would chase me down the street and, and kick me up and down it. Um, it was frightening. And uh, and school, again, I changed. And um, I uh, I ended up in a class with where I was just completely unaccepted. Um, and we all know about bullying in school. So uh, there was all this uncertainty and horribleness. Um, and, and, you know, I did feel loved by my father. I didn't feel loved by my mother. Um, and I think there was some untreated alcoholism there. She stopped drinking. Um, her twin sister died of alcoholism and went into Alcoholics Anonymous and never made it. Most of her family had alcohol problems. Um, my mother stopped drinking and... Um, at best, she was a dry drunk, and at worst, she was just a narcissist. Um, but she was very mean to me, and she would go long periods of time without talking to me, and I thought the worst thing I could ever do was be disloyal and say that she was being mean. So I kept my mouth shut, um, and I tried to adapt and modify my behaviour as much as I could. Um, so growing up was was unpleasant. But there was all these adverts on the television um, about how the guy who drank the martini would get the girl or how drinking certain beers will put you on a beach in the Bahamas um, or how life was rosier with a drink or how working-class guys were not working-class guys unless they had a pint. Um, and it was th th there was all this subliminal messages about drink. Um, all the pubs had these great signs on them um, and these 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 great old-fashioned romantic names. Um, and they seemed to be the place where everyone went to get happy. It seemed to be the social glue in these places where uh, people went and had a great time. And I, and I was a drink waiting to happen. Um, I couldn't wait to, to pick up my first drink. And um, I picked up my first drink at the age of 13, uh, 12. Um, by this point, my life had already started to take quite a turn. Um, I'd gone to the boxing club and I'd stopped being uh, kicked up and down the street by various people. And, and I started to uh, to look after myself. And I went down a long road of... Um, violence where I would never throw the first punch but I would almost invite um, aggression from bullies and go in the wrong nightclubs and the wrong places and and I was the defiant um, alcoholic that would never back down um, I also started playing rugby and, uh, and both these things sort of kept me on the straight and narrow um, all the, the dreams and aspirations I had uh, as a kid about uh, poetry and science and art and going to school and learning and the scholarships that I had been offered um, went out the window because I didn't go to any of these posh schools. I went to the school up the road where it was extremely violent and, and it was a frightening place to be. Um, and it was bit by bit I seemed to be giving up my dreams and, and my real self disappeared into the shadow um, and the cocky, arrogant, egotistical um, person came out that got sick of not being uh, the guy who, uh, 
you know, I was always the one left at the end of um, choosing football teams or um, I was the one that didn't have a girlfriend. I was the one that didn't have the right clothes or listen to the right music. I was the, the butt of somebody's jokes. Um, and uh, and I got myself a paper round. I got money. I got myself educated in the dark arts of social manipulation. Um, and um, and I arrived. And and I and I was the guy that got the girls and and uh, and was popular and the sport kept me in the straight and narrow and I didn't do any schoolwork until my final exams, um, but I found drink, and and drink found me and it was the solution. Um, suddenly I felt like I fitted in. Uh, my first drink was a drunk. It was a blackout, and um, and it became a disaster. So my step one CV, my list of uh, of qualifiers, um, I mean, I could say, well, at 14, I, 13, I blacked out my first drink. Um, at 14, I was working to pay for my drink. I was going out Thursdays and Fridays, um, and then it became Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, I went from stealing drink in the off-license with the guys to hanging around with the older guys uh, at the the in gang and uh, and going to the pubs and then from the shitty working man's pubs to the better pubs and then the wine bars and then the nightclubs. Um, And it didn't matter where I went. I couldn't control my drinking. And it... uh, it got me into trouble. It got me into fights. It got me into trouble with the police. It got me into court at the age of 14. Um, it got me into so much trouble uh, by the age of 16 that my poor mother, who did the only thing that she really could do, um, threw me out. And she'd been threatening to do that for eight years. My father was uh, dying of a heart uh, disease and uh, she couldn't cope. So at 16, I ended up homeless. Um I sold the car. Um, I bought at 17 to to make money in the auctions, um, which I slept in. My saving grace was I had a job, uh, British Aerospace. And uh, and I I went to uh, from sleeping in the car or couch surfing or roughing it to and um, and then some really bad places uh, to buying a house at the age of 17, filling it full of lodges. Did it up, made money, sold it, bought another one. By the age of 21, I was, um, I'd arrived. You know, I was a professional aeronautical design engineer. Uh, I had my own business. I left aerospace when contracting. Um, I had a sports car paid off on the drive. My house was paid off. Um, I uh, I had Armani suits and I, I looked like I had my shit together. Um, and of course, I hadn't, and it got worse. And I think it was by the age of 21, 80, 89, um, it was the year from hell. Um, I cancelled going to a football match with two of my buddies at the last minute because um, the, the rugby match I was trying to get out of, I got cajoled into to go in back into this important match we had. Um, I was playing National Division One rugby. 
So I went to the rugby match and on the way back, we stopped at the pub um, and I saw all the bodies being brought onto the football pitch at Hillsborough um, and the 97 died. Two of my friends didn't come back alive. Um, Brian, who did come back, was never the same again. Um, and I felt uh, I felt guilty that I didn't go. Um, I um, It was the year that my father died. Um, it was the year that I ended up in two court cases that uh, I wasn't guilty for these two things, but I was facing eight years in prison. Um, and when I came out of Lime Street Magistrate Station um, and went to the railway station, I um, I looked at the clock and I had 10 minutes to decide, do I get on the train at quarter past 12 or do I get the 30 minutes past 12? Um, which would allow me to have two or three pints to calm down my nerves before I went to London, Baker Street, um, to see my father before he went in for a, a, a triple bypass. And as an alcoholic who'd lost the power of choice, I had to have the drink. Um, I got down to London. I missed my father by 10 minutes. Um, he came out of the operation theatre um, it was a disaster. Um, he was stuck on a ventilator for two days. I watched him die. Um, I never got to say goodbye to him. That's my qualifier. Nothing else matters. Um, if I had any doubt that I was an alcoholic, um, that was that was it smashed. And it was so traumatic that I buried it. Uh, it wasn't until years later. Um, it, it resurfaced and um, there was also a, um, a separation of a relationship that was really toxic and unhealthy. Um, and I, um, when I separated two months later, my girlfriend, ex-girlfriend told me she was pregnant. I didn't know if it was mine or another guy she had. Uh, ended up with and um, I would I told her I would financially support her but not emotionally so she had an abortion for someone who's adopted for anyone that's incredibly difficult um, I know the emotional impact it has on women um, I don't think men talk about the emotional impact that has on them um, also that it is not the choice of men um, so it is a different kind of trauma. And knowing a guy that worked in um, as a psychiatric nurse, he said the worst type of trauma he'd ever came across was the UN peacekeepers here in former Yugoslavia and Bosnia. Um, it wasn't the PTSD that came from uh, being in war. It was the CPTSD that came from um, being told to stand down and watch innocent civilians um, be massacred and be being made to be helpless. Um, a trauma that I ended up having years later with my own children. Um, so at 21, I was the stoic son that stood by mum and sister and buried his dad and um, and nobody saw me at two o'clock in the morning on my hands and knees crying. 
Um, nobody saw um, the darkness that I was in. And that's when I started to use drink um, to survive. I'd already lost my license twice. Um, and um, so I did geographicals. I had several spare licenses and things like that. I knew every way around the law. Um, I went to Ireland contracting, stayed in Kilkeel for uh, a year. Um, I then ended up in Holland. Um, and I went from designing European fighter aircraft to flat roofing. What normal person does that? Um, and and it was the, the best couple of years I ever had because I had no responsibility. Um, I uh, I drank every night. We got drunk in the pub that we slept above. There was 15, 20 of us in, in the pub uh, that I drank in. And I thought I'd arrived. Um, the place looked like a cross between I'll feed the same pet and Pulp Fiction. Um, there was a fight every night. Um, the, the barman had a, a hump on his back. Um, it was a lovely Dutch guy. Um, and he was married to uh, a woman who had black teeth and a wooden leg, um, who'd been a prostitute on the Reaper barn. Um, and the other barman, Skippy, was the Dutch guy with an Australian accent who would play Romeo and Juliet on the jukebox until everyone couldn't bear it anymore because this guy had just split up with his love of his life and was drowning himself in any alcohol. Um, the, the, the place was mad. The 30 McDonnell Douglas scaffolders um, from somewhere in Scotland... Uh, I mean, it was, it was just anyone and everyone that was on the run from maintenance or murder was in that bar. Um, and I felt I'd arrived and I was at home. Um, and I met a girl. Um, my world tour stopped. Um, I got married in Holland and I tried to settle down. Um, I then wanted to become... Um, a constructive member of society. My wife was then didn't like the contracting, so I went back to the UK, went to university. My drinking sort of eased a little bit. Um, so for that reason, thought I wasn't an alcoholic. And um, I um, I trained, retrained uh, in science, education and environmental science. I started lecturing, uh, did teaching, and I ended up in the worst school um, at the, that was the bottom of the league tables in Knowsley, that was the bottom of the league tables in the counties. Uh, so it was officially the worst school in the country. Um, and um, I'd been asked to go there and been headhunted. And I met the team and I was amazed because I didn't like teachers. Um, and uh, I thought that they were people who just liked the sound of their own voices and that... Uh, you know, they, they controlled and bullied kids and acted out their childhood traumas. And, and suddenly I'm with these amazing people and my judgmental self um, got a rude awakening of what, what amazing jobs some professionals in that um, job do. Um, and I remember these kids, 95% of our uh, kids in this school were on free school meals. Um, about 85 to 90% of them had parents that were addicts and alcoholics um, and these kids would chew up and spit out supply staff in an hour um, 
if you got them on side, they would die for you. And it was it was the most rewarding time of my professional life in any profession I've done. Um, but I remember waking up one day at two o'clock in the morning and it, it was just like a bolt of lightning hit me. And I thought, that's it. It's every, every problem in this school, every problem in this community, every problem everywhere is down to alcoholism. It's alcohol. And and it was. And I, I could see it. I, you know, I got this this big picture thing um, that, that suddenly ignites sometimes. And I saw it all, but I couldn't see it myself. Um, and I... Um, yeah, it was astonishing. It was astonishing. And uh, long story short... I was renovating houses. I had 20, 30 guys working for me. I was getting up at five, six in the morning to start jobs, go to this school, come back, finish the building work off, flipping houses. Um, it was killing me. I was in a marriage that was broken with someone who was domestically violent, and I would ignore it because I'm a guy. I was a boxer. I was a rugby player. Um, and uh, and it was demolishing me inside, uh, which started a family I was about to leave and, and my wife got pregnant um, and and I couldn't abandon my kids. I couldn't do it and I didn't know why. I um, got a job in Jersey in the Channel Isles, which is somewhere where I'd always uh, dreamt of, of living. And I, um, I took my family there and I didn't go there to to get sober i didn't go there to stop drinking i went there to have a nice life uh, i didn't go there to have a breakdown i didn't go there to to end up dying on my feet um but when when the drinking stops working and you need it more and you've hit that jumping off place um when the emotional distress of being in an abusive relationship um, of not knowing how to walk out without walking out on your kids um, with, with not being given the tools to, to deal with this stuff. Um, and I had reached for the second time in my life, a point where I, I had everything I wanted in life. Um, you know, I'd gone from the, the three houses and the orchard and the cars to uh, so I couldn't stop drinking. And even though all my ducks were in a row, I couldn't stop drinking. Um, I'd, I'd gone to Jersey and I was living um, near the sea and a beautiful place and, and I couldn't stop drinking. Um, and, and I just thought, what's up with me? Why can't I stop drinking? And why do I feel so, so bad? Um, at 21, I had a, a failed attempt at suicide. Um, and uh, and that suicidal idealization was coming back again. Um, and one day, there was things happened at home which were totally unacceptable. And, and I told my wife to leave. Um, she took the kids. 
I decided that I was going to do a geographical to Hong Kong um, and just get off. Um, I spent two days trying to get drunk and I couldn't. And I sat on the, the couch that morning. Uh, a mate came around to try and talk sense into me and I said, no, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Um, and at that point, my eyes were yellow. My hair was falling out um, every morning. I would wake up with it on the pillow. I passed blood every morning when I went to the toilet. I'd have random nosebleeds. I couldn't stop them. If I cut myself, there was no clotting agents. Um, I didn't know until much later that I was not far off dying. Um, and my cousin, who's a nurse, told me that, you know, had I had even four paracetamol, I'd have probably died. Um, it, uh, it's amazing how ill you can get physically and still carry on. The physical abuse is incredible. Um, the mental abuse was was horrendous. Um, and I'd spent two years in a rock bottom uh, where I still got up every morning, put on a, a suit, shirt and tie, helped run a school, got the best results. Um, and no one knew that I was dying. And I just knew one day I was just going to jump off a cliff or I was going to turn around and say, I can't do this anymore and, and pull the duvet over my head and I was never going to get out of bed. Um, and when I'd let it go, it was all going to go. I'd even thought about going onto the streets so people would leave me alone. I could get on with my drinking. Um, and I sat there that morning and I thought about people who had been in a situation with drink and uh, and and or had lost their family. And had I seen this before? And yeah, it was always drink. And I and looked at my drinking, and I knew. I suddenly I knew. Um, and I picked up the phone of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know why I did that. I I suspect as a kid, there was my aunt's book on her bookshelf. And, you know, I'd asked, what is that strange looking first edition book of Alcoholics Anonymous? And, and I was told it was Alcoholics Anonymous. And the eight-year-old said, what, what does that mean? Um, I remember that, um, possibly something in, in, in a film. Um, but what I do remember is that when I finally traced my biological mother and that didn't fix the hole in the soul, um, she was living in the south of France in Cannes and I had three half brothers who were French. Um, and it was, it was amazing until it wasn't. She was a drunk, um, very narcissistic, very abusive and... It was it was a difficult relationship, but she what she did do was get sober for six months, and she took me to Alcoholics Anonymous, and as a grateful member of Alco of Al-Anon, I sat in this meeting in the uh, American Church in Cannes, um, and looked at all these guys and and said, well, you know, these are not alcoholics. How are these alcoholics? They've all got Rolex watches, Ferraris, and yachts outside. Um, and then this backpacker walked in, and the only thing I remember, and I was 26, was this backpacker who walked in late and, uh, and apologised because he couldn't find the church and he got lost. 
And then he pulls out this book of Alcoholics Anonymous and he waves it around in the air and he says, I, this got me sober and I've read this 10 times in the last six months. I cannot fault a word in it. And um, I just sat there and thought, I was astonished. This this guy was just not much older than me. And this this he's not only lost, can't find the American church, no wonder, because his book for life is Alcoholics Anonymous. And he's got to read it 10 times to work out who he is and where he's going. And uh, and that's all I remember from that meeting. And 10 years later, I'm on the phone to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, um, I connected for the first time in my life to another human being. I heard somebody that understood me, somebody that knew my pain, somebody that recognized um, where I was coming from and, and somebody that accepted me for who I was trying to suggest I might be, which was an alcoholic. And, and, and I suddenly felt this surge, like I'd never felt anything in, in my life, this power inside me that said, you're not going to stop drinking. Take another drink now. And, and and she said to me, there's a meeting tonight and, and you're welcome and I'll meet you there. And I said, I'm not going to make it. He said, no one I can speak to before. And she said, there's a lunchtime meeting. So it was 11th of August, 2004. Um, I, I met Irish Pat and she took me into this lunchtime meeting in, in Jersey, St. Helier. Um, and I sat there and I saw these two banners. Uh, I read them. I listened to these people talking about um, stopping drinking for a week, for a month, um, some of them for years and some of them for decades. And they were happy and they, uh, well, many of them were happy and they had a solution and I didn't. And I, and I knew, I knew I was fucked. I, I knew I was an alcoholic and I knew I was going to die. And I knew this thing was bigger than me and more powerful. And I needed a power greater than myself. And I'd felt it before I'd walked into that meeting. I poured the drink down the sink, as was suggested on the phone. And, and I felt this surge in, in me that when I accepted defeat and I accepted that I needed to, to, to stop drinking, this, this thing revealed itself and said, no, you're not. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I lined up a treatment center the next day. Um, and in case I relapsed, because I knew I just had one recovery left in me. I, I didn't know if I could ever do this again. Um, and I staggered into my second meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in this cold church. Um, and there was a lady sat there coughing and she was the only one that shuffled up uh, to make a seat in this packed meeting. And I judged her. Um, she looked like a bag lady. She was coughing and spluttering. I thought, oh, my God, do I have to sit next to her? But she stinks. Um, and, um, and I sat next to her and I just thought, you know, she's definitely an alcoholic. I bet she's never going to make it. And at half time, she was the one that stood up and got, made me coffee. Um, and then she sat down and when she shared, I heard 
a strength and wisdom I'd never heard in anyone. Um, and she had several months before woken up with the love of her life dead next to her in bed. Um, she'd been told she had cancer and emphysemia and she was going to die shortly um, and she was not going to pick up a drink. Um, she had eight sponsees. She cared more for them than she did for that next drink. Um, and I saw a power and a determination and a resilience that I had never seen in anyone. Um, and in, in, in dying sober, she showed me how to live. Um, she left me a book, little red book. And when Janine gave it me, because we, we became good friends over the three months before she died. I asked her, why did she give me that? And she said she, she was very fond of you, Mike, and uh, she knew you were going to help a lot of people. I could barely stay sober. That's the incredibleness of this fellowship. It's the power of people can see in you what you cannot see yourself, including your strengths or your possibilities or your potential. And I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous and I could tell you how to make money, how to flip houses, how to build a property portfolio. I could tell you how to make money on the stock market. I could tell you Bernoulli's principle and why aircraft flew. I could tell you the laws of physics, biology, and chemistry. I could tell you the gear hypothesis. I couldn't tell you who I was. I couldn't tell you why I wanted to die. I couldn't tell you why I wanted to not wake up every morning. I couldn't tell you what had happened to me. I couldn't tell you what life was about. I didn't know why I was here anymore. Um, I couldn't tell you anything useful and that mattered. And Alcoholics Anonymous has educated me on everything I didn't know that was important. Uh, and people like Kay um, took me from the dark into the light. They showed me the light. Um, I saw people dying in those first months. I saw young people go out and not come back. And when I asked where they were, they'd fallen asleep and they'd burnt themselves to death in a chair. Uh, they'd gone into a field with a bottle of vodka and never came out. Um, after two weeks, I was back with the family. My wife reunited. We were on holiday and I... Um, I was terrified that I was going to go to France where there was no meetings. And big Icelandic John gave me the book and said, this will keep you sober, read that for two weeks. And he was right. What I didn't know is Icelandic John didn't have a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He didn't read it. He relapsed two years later after being seven years sober. Um, and within a couple of years, he was dead. He never read the book. Like many of the fellowship, he didn't do the steps. Um, I didn't hear much of the steps, but I got myself a sponsor. He put me on Hazelden pamphlets, and within seven months, I was at step seven. Within eight months, I was at step eight. Um, and, and I got on planes, and I flew uh, to Ireland and Holland and France and Germany and the UK, um, and I made amends, and I knocked on doors, and I made graves, and I sat churches, and I cried, and I grieved, and I did everything that that 
program told me to do. Um, I rebuilt my finances, my home, myself, my life, uh, my children, never seen me drunk. Um, I, I, I couldn't rebuild my marriage. I didn't read the family afterwards and to wives properly that there are people that you would be better to just leave if they use the program to um, beat you over the head with the book. Um, there are some people who are just thoroughly bad intention, Bill says in those chapters. And would it be right for you and your your children will suffer horribly? I thought that was about the Al-Anon. I didn't realise that could also be about me. I was so codependent, I couldn't see myself in those pages. And um, and after two and a half years, the the, the houses, the, the, the business, the, all of it went. Uh, we got a divorce and it was a mess. Uh, my son got very ill. Um, a year later, I got hoovered back into it. Um, and uh, and it didn't work out. And, and then that's a whole other story. Um, but I, I walked away. I divorced my wife. Um, being the narcissist that she is, uh, she destroyed as much as she could. And um, thank you. And it was uh, it was horrendous, and I didn't have the capacity anymore to get through it. I'd been dying on my feet in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, and and I got I, I'd gone from a five bedroom house to a bedsit, um, and I was sat looking at a stairwell, weighing up, hanging myself at the end of the day, and 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 saying to God, I can't do this no more, um, and. Uh, Something needs to change. I, I cannot do this one day at a time. It's too painful. I want to die. Um, I've lost everything that's dear to me, and, and I'm sober. Um, and it's too painful. And I um, I got a phone call immediately. And it was off a friend to go to Dublin to hear Peter Marinelli and Chris Myers-Raymer um in a monastery in dublin and i said fuck off i don't want any of this big book stuff um i don't want this god squad whatever it is or what i thought it was um and he said well just think about it and and then i put the phone down and within 30 seconds another friend of mine wendy rang up and said look i've got uh, two flights reserved to go to dublin for this big book convention you want to come with me and I said, have you just been on the phone to Justin? She said, no, what are you talking about? And I said, really, I, I don't know about this. And then I got another phone call. It was the ex-wife telling me that uh, she couldn't look after the kids. So um, she was going to drop my daughter off. And it, it took me out of myself. And I had to pick my son up from a guitar lesson. And I went around the the, the block. And um, I... Uh, A huge Polish drunken guy walked across um, the road, kicking cars, and I was begging, please do not come near me. Of course, he did. He laid into the, the convertible car I had. My daughter was panicking, and I told him in no uncertain terms that if he didn't get away from my car, what I would do. I think the guy sobered up out of blackout with fear. Um, and as I was driving... Another 50 yards down the road, picked my son up. Another drunk staggered in front of the car. 
um, covered in blood and crying. And my son said, please, dad, don't stop for him. And I said, I won't. Um, and, and, I, and I caught myself. I haven't even got compassion for drunks. And I stopped and I, and I helped this guy. And the next minute I was on, on the phone and I rang five old timers to try and help uh, get this guy to a meeting. And none of them would come out. Uh, and I rang a newcomer who was six months sober, Dublin Dave. And uh, Dublin Dave came out, took him to a meeting, and I got well. And I booked the flight and I went to Dublin. Um, and I heard how this book is to, to be used and operated. And, and it says in the forward to the second edition, you know, this book is a flying manual. Um, and when this book was printed, um, AA um, stopped flying blind, it says, and it ended this dark period in alcoholism. And this book is the flying manual. And I suddenly realized that the people that told me don't read the book had never read the book. The people that told me don't do the steps had never done the steps. The people that told me take it easy were not doing anything. I met one of them last month when I went back to Jersey. He's the same age as me, nearly. He was a big, strong lad when I came in to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he has uh, got two withered legs, both of them broken from motorcycle accidents. His pancreas is shot. Um, he's had a stroke. He's dying. He walks around on a Zimmer frame. And he's been relapsing for 20 years. Um, and I'm glad I stopped listening to him. And a lovely guy you would never meet. Um, and for the first time, I got myself a big book sponsor who, who did my house clearing on the steps. I went through that book in one and a half days. Um, I started sponsoring people because I felt I had some mechanism to do it, to do it correctly. And uh, the first two people I took through the book, one was a, um, an alcoholic heroin addict, and the other one was a Catholic priest. Um, the heroin addict, 17 years later, is clean and sober, and he's cleared out his hepatitis, and he's got a son and a wonderful family and a great life. Uh, the Catholic priest was dead in six months because he wouldn't get over his anger with God. Um, and I started to work with people, and... Um, you know, the divorce that I ended up with destroyed my life and, and the abuse that I found out later, my kids, and I had to fight for two years to get my son back. Um, thank you. I have, um, I, I, I went through so much trauma, um, not being able to help and save my kids that I ended up with EMDR treatment. Um, and the house, the job, the career, that all of it, I walked away. I did a step three one morning and said, God, I need to go. I've got eight jobs waiting. Nothing's happening. And uh, please show me the way. Um, and within 30 seconds, I get a phone call. And there's a job in Slovenia that I hadn't even applied for. Um, I came here and I felt the weight lift off me. And I walked away from my life. Um, my son was in a treatment centre, my daughter on the way to university, uh, got my son in university. I thought it was over and I thought it was all okay. Um, I found a girl I fell in love with. Um, it didn't happen often. 
and uh, had a great job with who I thought was a great boss. And it all went to shit. COVID, burnout, COVID. Um, trauma came back up. Um, and I had no answer for it. Um, and I ended up suicidal, 16 and a half years sober. Um, traumatised, lost 10 kilo. Um, I had COVID in my, my heart. Uh, chest cavity, my lungs, couldn't breathe, uh, my kidneys, and um, the girl walked out, uh, boss fired me, and um, I ended up in this flat, suicidal. And all I had was the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and God. Um, I couldn't even get professional help. And... I went back through the work, turned my, my flat into a 12-step a, a treatment centre, and, and I looked at everything in the doctor's opinion, not just the allergy and the craving, which I knew about, but what, what was going on with my dopamine, my serotonin, my norepinephrine, my adrenaline, all the internal cycles. Um, and, I, you know, I'd given up gambling, I'd given up drink, I'd given up all sorts of other addictions, but I... I knew something was chemically imbalanced with me. Um, and I went through my program and I went through the trauma and I went through the steps again. I looked at my love ideal again, uh, my sex ideal, my friendship ideal. Where did these things come from? The hidden messages. Carl Jung says, you know, if you, you don't look at your subconscious, you will keep on making the same mistakes and you call it fate. Um, I looked at the relationships and why I always ended up with a narcissist or a sex addict and why my picker was broken. And what was I trying to heal from my childhood past? I looked at all the subliminal messages. Um, and I walked into a church, a Jesuit priest, and asked him if he could give me some spiritual guidance. And he said, thank God you've turned up. I have 10, 12-step groups and no one to take anyone through the book or sponsor anyone or show them the program keep it short um we started doing workshops um and in two and a half years um after sitting in a meeting on my own um through covid and after covid and tony the guy that sat for three years on his own before i arrived at this international meeting um We've put about 700 people through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We've sold a 1,000 books in two languages. We've run 20 workshops, um, fellowships in, in, in all sorts of areas and things I didn't even know exist um, have mushroomed and gone, and, and, and gone exponential. The success rates have been between 50 and 75% of those that come and really try, like it says in the forward to the first edition. Um, and I am now in the fourth dimension far more than I ever was. Um, I've done my last 15 minutes of life. Um, the, the, the houses, the cars, the girl, the shit, the, the aspirations, the ambition, none of it matters. None of it matters. You know, we're all going to be dead soon. We've been 14 billion years dead um, before we got here. We're here a small lump of time before we disappear and it's all going to go on for another endless amount of time. And, and what are we, what are we going to do while we're here? I'm not going to sit on my ass and do shit. 
uh, fuck that. I'm sober once. I have one life. I see it all now. I see, I see all of it. There is no life without service. And service can come in many ways. But I'm supposed to be taking guys through that book. So I do that. And uh, and if there's newcomers here struggling, get yourself a book, a sponsor, and someone that's on page 18 that knows what they're doing, not some idiot that, that tells you his opinion um, and not wishing to offend anyone. But we've seen miracles happen here. Uh, Libyana has gone on fire um, with fellowship, and there's a YPAR group, there's young people. We're about to go into prisons, into the university, and for the third time of asking, now I know why I was sent here. Um, we've just been awarded Europa, the European Young Persons Convention, which is coming here in Slovenia in uh, in the end of uh, July next year. And I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing tomorrow. Um, but I do know if I die now that my life has been worth living and that I've done something with my life. And I have so much pain in my life some days with my children. And and, and that's life. Um, and I can let it go and I can get on with, with things. I have incredible people around me. I have a wonderful partner. Um, I live in a, a medieval flat underneath a castle. Um, I go up there every morning or every evening. I've done my meditations for forgiveness. Those people I've hurt. Those people have hurt me and how I've hurt myself. I work with people who have got all sorts of addictions, including alcoholism, and mostly I'd sooner work with alcoholics than anything else because they're simple. Um, and um, and I've just rented a place underneath another castle in Kamnik by the Julian Alps here, which is just spectacular um, because we're starting a trauma centre in uh, in a couple of months. And, and I'm living my dream. Um, and uh, and that's by the grace of God I haven't had a drink. Because when all else fails, don't drink. And when that fails, get on your knees. And when that fails, get on the phone, get in the book, get in the steps. And reality is not what we think. I knew that at the age of four. Um but it's in black and white in that book, how quickly and powerfully you can do these steps and set up fellowships. And we shouldn't have newcomers coming into Alcoholics Anonymous who sit there saying, I don't know how this works. I don't know what to do. And be 95% unsuccessful. That's really shitty odds. Um, and, and I know that the forward to the second edition says... 50% got sober at once, 25% after some relapses. And, and that's my success rate with alcoholics I work with. Uh, that's been the success rate of many of the workshops. And uh, and now we're doing online workshops and, and doing 100 at a time. Um, and, uh, and, and why? Because the people that carried the message to me, people like Peter Misson, Chris Myers-Raymer, Peter Marinelli, Cliff Bishop, who spent seven days a week doing Skype meetings as, a, as an amend for saying nothing when the message started to disappear out of our fellowship in the 70s. Um, it's a wonderful life. And, uh, and, and, and with that comes pain sometimes. Um, but it's okay. Um, and I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very privileged to do this sort of service and speak to 50, 60 people at a time. 
I know there won't be any Scots and Irishmen here because they're playing rugby tonight. But anyone else, um, I hope I've said something that has been of any use to somebody. And, uh, and I think I'll finish there. Thank you.